As the coronavirus pandemic took the world by storm, for the first time, many people in developed countries understood what it is like to lack access to essential medicines they need to survive. For people in poor countries, lack of access to medicines has always been a problem. This podcast explores the access to medicines issue and how we can promote global health more broadly. Famous scientist Marie Curie once said that talking is the best medicine. In this podcast, we will heed the advice of Curie and discuss how we can ethically and effectively tackle the health challenges currently affecting our world. Throughout this series, we will break down and explore fascinating new research being conducted by leading researchers and activists in the diverse field of public health who have dedicated their lives to understanding the problems and identifying the solutions to health crises that impact millions of people around the world. So, sit back and enjoy this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine, brought to you by the Global Health Impact Project. Welcome back to another season of Talk is the Best Medicine. My name is Matt Pulowski. And my name is Maria Kamatan. And today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Zohar Letterman. Dr. Letterman is a medical doctor who also earned a humanities BA at the Open University in Israel. He also received his PhD in bioethics at the National University of Singapore. In addition to his work as a medical doctor, Dr. Letterman is working with Dr. Jennifer Miller from the Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Anders Herlitz from the Institute for Future Studies at Stockholm University, and GHI's own Dr. Nicole Hassoun from Binghamton University on a WHO grant evaluating how best to equitably distribute COVID-19 vaccines. Today, Dr. Letterman will speak about his current work in the field of bioethics and specifically evaluating the democratic processes or lack thereof in the COVID-19 vaccine distributions around the world. Thank you for coming to speak with us today, Dr. Letterman. Thank you. Dr. Letterman, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been working in the field? And- yeah, first you can call me. So I started in philosophy, studying philosophy, doing my military service. And then I realized that there's no in academic philosophy at least. And so I wanted to do something safe. Then I realized how I missed philosophy, useful or not, practical or not. So bioethics was an opportunity. Thank you, Zohar, for that. We will now be moving on to the lecture portion where Zohar will discuss whenever you... Thank you. The main impact project came from the, not everything that we deem to be right or just. Right, so I think in four more years, we saw that in national and international politics, right? The mismatch between what is right and what is governing, who is governing. I think everybody who paid attention to, I think, understand that. And also practicing medicine, you know, and talking with who are not bioethicists, who are not in ethics, you realize that there's there's some sort of mismatch again between what we deem to be right and what, and what, when we do academic, we are supposed to the academic field of when it comes to dictating or guiding policy, it becomes a problem. That's why academics, or so I think that's the reason, or that's the bad. First, you know, first thing to do is identify the problem. Clear to everyone. There's a limited amount of vaccines. There's enough for everyone, and it's going to be a while until there is enough for everyone. And take the vaccine in a given period. For now, for example, in Israel, it's going to be six months foreseeable. So you have a problem of 
which is one of the condition of justice really, is that you don't have enough resources to distribute to resources. We want to, in an ideal world at least, distribute resources. So you have different kinds of justice. Usually when we think about justice, is justice and fairness. Justice, a sense of who is. So in that fairness, there is a certain problem with justice or distribution in the context of vaccines. Try to figure the podcast. Uh, so you mentioned, I think I saw someone with the last name of she, at least in Italy. But as you can see, there's a fact that play in the vaccination pro. So it's one thing to dis. It's another thing make sure that people store and this, as you could see in the States, which basically, right, the entire distributive. Israel, for example, is much better uh, now vaccinated. Uh, as you can see, and this represents the number of people vaccinated in the population. The website, real number. The point here, we don't have, other than the vaccination project that I'm not going to discuss, we have a problem of not, uh, down to a question internally or not. Uh, the problem vaccines, okay? And all of you who study political science, you know, that describe uh, a certain distributive justice. There are a lot out there. Usually, Bio came up with a uh, relatively new one. But here is an example, which is in the to understand it. But this is an example of, to a paper we published in an Israeli newspaper in here, of fair distribution. And this, I'm guessing, right? I don't care about any distributive justice. Nobody deserves things. So my enemy, okay? I don't know enemies referring to sounds crazy. This is public. Nobody cares about it. the idea of distributive justice and distribution. It's hard to say, oh, this is a bad idea in the distribution. But when you see philosophers or thought experts to test an idea, I think it okay. So here is a small that I figured. Think about you can keep it in the back of your mind. Consider that you have one vaccine, let's say it's the AstraZeneca. You can choose who to give it to who live in a place with a life expectancy, and it happens to be. On the other hand, you have a 70-year-old who lives, in, in this case, the person B, the person, he lives in a, a, a poor place, and who do you give the vaccine? I think intuitively we will to the person who is, but then when you think about it, wait a second, but he, then person, even more importantly, right, so it gets more complicated. So I became interested in the different, and I came interested also because I I got interested in the different proposals, arguing how should be this. And I go through the, the paper, and you could look at it and we could maybe focus on this by the WHO, but which is going to be the lead, this is how going to happen and how vaccines are going to. And so there was a gathered by the WHO to think about the core values or principles. And don't get me wrong, I mean, we're involved and extremely smart, lead the field of, and they came up with this human well-being, equal respect, global equity. I don't know if you've heard about the COVAX project, core values will dictate, will, and the of the COVAX, which basically means that rich countries to this project will donate both poor developing countries, that did the rich countries, developed countries that did, and a fix of the, just enough to cover at first, 3% of the population? Now, let's focus. Ethically, I think it's to object to any of these values. Who doesn't care about human well-being be a guiding? The same goes, for, I mean, come on. It's right. It's very difficult to write a paper against the notion of equal respect. But just focusing on the globe, think about that. That means that it doesn't have to be perceived. The vaccine should be adjusted of a certain country. So let's take and both countries under the, this COVAX principle or COVAX project under this principle. But who, 
needs it more? Or rather, who would you prefer giving the vaccine to? Or people who a lot of them happen to vote, let's put it mildly, didn't care much about the, the resources he had to contain where is justice. So that's, I think another more, even a greater problem is the lack of process leading principles or uh, there was no democratic deliberation prior to that. So this was a bunch of really small things. They are nothing new. They didn't invent, these are all pretty in bioethics and pretty well accepted by philosophers. But again, I think deemed to be worthwhile, even perceived like that by, so, and I think there are at least two problems or three, even one is conceptual. And one is that if you think about it, donate the money, it's taxpayer money. You donated the money to this project, to the WHO, right? This is your, what to do about it or how to distribute it. In this case, you could say, oh yeah, but I voted for the current president. That's, I mean, that, I think that's a fair response. But what about other countries that didn't vote COVAX project? It's like a government all not respecting the promises it did make prior to the election, which happens a lot. As I showed you the graph, we now have a global problem. Of, and one, we know that one factor in that, uh, this reduced compliance or lack of compliance, is the distrust of worldwide. And Obviously, justify it empirically, the following statement, but I think that might increase the, if people will see that their voice is being heard in the decision-making, in the devising process of these core values and guiding principles. Another problem is that, again, not only possible, but at least that people don't buy in to this principle, for example, which included a survey of 1,000. And they asked them, they presented to patients and they asked, and here you can see what people said aligned with the request to treat some equally, in this case, equitably, is the disconnect where the recommendation, so in this case, if you look, the recommendation was, as we saw, the respondent said, no, we don't care about an equal distribution. We just don't care about this core value, this core principle. So one thing you can say is, and what we do in ethics six in philosophy classes, we try to convince students otherwise. So when I teach ethics, I try in a very academic way to convince people or to let them see what's right and what's wrong. So to teach them how to think through cases so they have a reasonable or reasoned belief. But in this case, ethicists might be policymakers. The guidelines and values that were published are guiding the policy of vaccine distribution. And once there is a disconnect between what ethicists think and what the public thinks and believes in, I think it makes for a problem when it translates into policy. This is not to say that from an ethical perspective, the core values, for example, of equal distribution is wrong, don't get me wrong, but I think 
it creates a problem, even a crisis for academics and for the policy itself. And I will end with this. Thank you. Thank you, Zohar. That was a really great presentation and really interesting topic and thing you've written about. So just for everyone to know, we're gonna start with about half hour of questions. If anyone has any questions who's listening, they can put it in the chat and then near the end, we will try to get to as many as we can if anyone has any questions that come up or what Zohar has just presented on. So Zohar, before I get into like the nitty gritty of kind of what you've been talking about in this democratization of the vaccine distribution you talked about, I kind of just want to ask a question about, since you're a medical doctor and you're a bioethicist and you're on the front line in this pandemic, I think you really have both aspects of something really important during this pandemic. So I was just wondering what it's like working right now as a medical doctor and knowing what you know as a bioethicist. Does that help you in who you want to treat as a patient, like when you run out of supplies or anything like that? Just how has it been on the front line, I guess? It sucks. It sucks. That's the short answer. <laughs> the longer answer, it really sucks. No, I mean, the longer answer is it's complicated. So just two weeks ago, I think it was, that was the first time I had to tell a family member, in this case, a son, that his dad died over the phone, right? That's the first time I had to do it. They don't teach you that in medical school. They don't teach you that ever. When I teach medical students, I don't teach them that. And I think from an ethical perspective, it's a huge problem. You're not supposed to tell people that their loved one died over the phone. Because a lot of it is reading their body language, even touching them, you know, just getting a sense of them and responding to that. And you cannot do it by phone. And I mean, I think in Israel, we have it pretty balanced. Other places like the U.S., like Brazil, for example, like Italy, situation there is really bad. And I think the same goes, I'm not even talking about the long hours and the PPE, the protective measures we have to wear now, which I have to tell you, it's incredibly hot in there. It's hard to breathe. You can barely see anything. It's very hard to do any procedures like intubate patients we're supposed to do that a lot and it's just it's a nightmare right uh, where i work uh, it's actually the only hospital i think in the middle east where there is a, a second underground hospital right so where i work is the north of israel and they build this huge structure underground to protect from you know missiles and now we use it as a covid 19 hospital and just going down there and going through the hallways you feel this amazing or not this really weird feeling of i think you can call it loneliness or it's a it's a version of if you've read the house of god you haven't i recommend it but it creates a really weird feeling that you don't know what's going on and it's so abnormal it's hard to get used to and i think a lot of people in my institution at least a lot of clinicians a lot of colleagues they actually got ptsd because of that they got very anxious they started taking medications 
started getting into therapy. For a lot of them, you know, so I work in the in the emergency department. I'm used to people dying, both young and old. So you get used to it. But for my colleagues who work in internal medicine departments, they they are not as used to it as we are, people working in the ED, and they have it really difficult. Right? All of a sudden, you have young people dying, just just like that. And the speed in which these patients are crashing is, again, scary. Again, I mean, oh, just recently, I spent four hours with a patient. I just, I, I saw how he's declining, crashing, and he ended up dying. And nothing I could do, there was nothing I could do to save him. And that, I, I, I've never experienced that before. Wow. So moving on to the topic of the vaccine, how much of a discrepancy exists, in your opinion, between how ethicists should believe the vaccine should be distributed and how the medical community and the general public believe it should be distributed? And that's, that's a big question. So I'm aware of only this one study that I mentioned. I invite you to look for more. I suspect there is a huge discrepancy. Again, from responses that I get talking with people, from the responses I get from publications here and there, they agree. We have some differences, but you know, most of us pretty much agree on the core values and principles. As I told you, they are pretty standard. But when you talk with people, when you talk with the public, when you talk with other healthcare professionals, I, I get the feeling, and I, can, I cannot support it empirically, you get the feeling that there's a huge discrepancy. People are just not there when it comes to ethical principles. People will, well, I think we know it psychologically, but also uh, as ethics teachers, people will tend to choose to prioritize their close ones, their family, their tribe, their city, their country. So I think Nicole just published a short paper about vaccine nationalism. And I think that's a huge problem. She can speak more to that. But you certainly get the feeling, both in Israel and abroad, that people would prioritize their own country before other countries. And for a bioethicist, it's extremely hard to justify that position. And I think it creates a huge problem. So also in terms of how we distribute the vaccine, do you think it has to be democratic in order to be legitimate? Like, could there ever be a negative side effect from making it democratic? Like you said, kind of people sometimes having biases for their own groups. Is it sometimes better just for if we had, I guess, like a technocrat just saying, this is what we need to do in order to beat this pandemic? Yeah, that's a, that's a fitting question for uh, political scientists. I think that's an excellent <laughs> I think that's an excellent question, and I don't have a good answer for that. So I can tell you, I just, well, not, not recently, but two years ago or so, I submitted a paper, and I, one of the greatest criticisms that I got from a reviewer was exactly that. Uh, I pressed for a democratic process uh, of a, this, a policy in public health, never mind, and the reviewer was like, no, that's nonsense. You don't want to ask the public 
about what they want, you need to tell them, as it were, as an ethicist, what is right. I think as, as ethicists, we have to face that challenge every time we discuss or write about ethics. On the one hand, you know, we are supposed to be experts on ethics. That's what we do. It's like you are not going to teach me now about emergency medicine. My response would be, go do medical school, do a residency for three years, then come back. And the same goes for ethics, with slight modifications. I think there are two problems with that. One is a conceptual problem, again, of the expert. What is the expert? The fact that you read a lot of books, you thought a lot, a lot about ethics, and you teach a lot and write about ethics, doesn't necessarily mean you are right, even if there's such a thing as a right in ethics. And I'm not going to go into that. Those of you are philosophers, I think, know what I'm talking about. But there is a danger in leaving ethics to experts that we may be way off. And think, just think about examples in the past where ethicists, you know, some of the best philosophers devise their theories just to justify great injustices. So that, that's one problem. A, a second problem is that, especially as bioethicists, you know, so philosophers can sit in the classroom, do what we call armchair philosophy, and everything would be fine. You know, what they say won't have a large impact other than the classroom. I think for bioethicists, writing and thinking about concrete stuff, like your project, for instance, like improving access to medicines worldwide, like vaccine distribution, we want our work to be practical. We want to contribute to do something good. And if that's the case, having a disconnect with, with, between what we say and what the public thinks is just a game changer. It blocks, it ends the conversation. It makes our work useless. In order to be effective, I think, in order to be useful, sometimes we have to maybe tone it down, be less extreme in our presentations, in our positions. Again, to do more good, sometimes we may need to be less of ethicists, less of philosophers, more as, and more as politicians, maybe. Uh, so you talked about the different principles of the WHO values framework for the allocation of the vaccine. So in your opinion, under the value of legitimacy, which is to engage all the countries in a transparent consultation. So in your opinion, what does this transparent consultation look like to you and where do you think we should improve? Yeah, so this is, this is a great example. So, you know, they write, and I expand on this in the paper, but when they write engagement with the public, that sounds good, right? Again, it's hard to argue against engagement with the public. But when you read it more carefully, you realize that when, when they say engagement is what you said, 
into a transparent process where they notify the public, especially talking about international distribution, but not only, also nationally, notify the public as to what you decided. You know, again, so you have a group of experts in ethics, in public policy, sitting together, devising this really cool and nice core principles and values. Based on these core principles and values, you create a policy, an allocation scheme of vaccine. Of vaccine. Then you transparently notify the public about the process, you know, what people, maybe you distribute the notes of the meeting and you let people know what the policy is. Again, don't get me wrong, you should do that. No question about that. Transparency is good and transparency will increase compliance. We know that, but it's done enough. So what I suspect, I'm not sure about it. I'm not sure I'm, I'm right about it, but what I suspect to be better, and what I mean, what I mean by better is more effective, more close to what is right or what should happen is to involve the public from the get-go. So before you get a group together, a group of experts to talk about, to devise these vaccines and core values, you get the public together and you ask them, what do you believe should be the core values and principles to guide the allocation scheme? And there are different ways of doing that. And again, Matthew can tell you about different modes, different kinds of a democratic process for decision-making. So you have a range from representative democracy to a more participatory democracy. You have examples of that both in philosophy and political science and also in bioethics. Even. I think the most minimalist approach is what people are calling community jury. Uh, this is sort of small meetings with a limited number of people. Just you, you gather from the public. So you go to a neighborhood and you gather representatives. You find some way to just get a group going. It can be 20 people, it can be 50 people, it can even be 100 people. You get them in a room together and you ask them, tell me what the core values should be. So there's a lot of work. A friend of mine and a colleague has done a lot of work with this uh, type of democratic process in Australia. And they came up with really cool answers to things like control of rabies in Australia, for example. So that's the most, and, and you use what they tell you to guide your discussion, your deliberation afterwards. Right, so you get them to tell you what they think is important. You bring that to the table where a group of experts discuss it. You know, the group of experts might just say, you know what, this is nonsense. So if people, you end up, if people tell you that they do believe that the right way to go is vaccine nationalism, you know, I think it's legitimate to say, you know, for example, if Nicole would be on that panel of experts, 
no, vaccine nationalism, a bad idea. Let's just ignore it. And I, I think that there's an argument to be made justifying that approach. But I think there, is, there should be a deliberative process where the opinions, opinions of the public are included from the get-go. A more substantive process, a democratic process, might be a kind of a participatory process where you don't have this group of experts devising a policy. You get the public to dictate the policy, to devise the, the values and principles directly. You know, think about ancient Greece, okay, the way they voted with their legs. You find a way to do that, to replicate that approach. And there are some proposals as to how to do that. Maybe Nicole could send you a link to uh, Zeke Emanuel's book uh, where he talks about that. He gives examples, for example. So you have a range, and I'm not sure which method is the best. I think, you know, trial and error could guide us here. But I think uh, some sort of a democratic process should play in. Yeah, so it seems like you're mentioning like more formal type of democratic processes. Like I think in another paper you've said you called them juries, whether it be local, national, or international. Do you think if it was also like an informal mechanism, for example, I can speak from experience here at GHI. Like I know uh, Professor Asun and amongst other ethicists have been writing in papers and into news outlets trying to out from outside the government, trying to pressure different agencies like the CDC or just governments, international governments into, into making their decision-making. Do you think that could also be, would that fit your democratic definition as well? Or do you really stress the, the formality of having formal juries of like the public getting involved in like voting on what the correct policy should be? Yeah, I think it's both. So I think, I think that's what, I think traditionally, this is what we're supposed to do. Bioethicists should write, you know, from the ivy tower of academia. Sometimes they should publish in newspapers. You know, I sometimes publish in newspapers in, in Israel, you know, hoping to make a change just because nobody reads academic papers. Um, I think that's how it should work. That's how it has been working until recently. Now what we are seeing and what, what um, made me think about this as a problem is that bioethics actually dictates policy, okay? So it's more direct dynamics now. Uh, bioethics actually direct and dictate how vaccines are going to be distributed. And again, bioethicists are not politicians. So they may be right uh, from a pure conceptual, normative, ethical sense, but they may not reflect, or they, not, they may not be ideal for reflecting the will of the people. Okay, I, th I think that's the main concern. So uh, answer to your question, I think both things should happen. One is that we as bioethicists, academics, 
should keep writing about it in the media, in academic journals, hoping to influence policy, but maybe we shouldn't be dictating policy. Maybe we shouldn't be actually writing the policy. Uh, and I think there should be a, some sort of a formal democratic process, again, by different, can be of various kinds, uh, that actually plays into the process itself, the decision-making process itself. All right, so it looks like we have a few questions from the chat. So Jenna asks, to what extent is burden of disease considered with vaccine allocation? And is it ethical to look at burden of disease as a method of allocation? Yeah, so I mean, that's, uh, yeah. So I think all proposals that you see there do take that into account. The burden of disease, certainly. Uh, and not only the burden of disease, so I mean, what is the burden of disease, right? So you can talk about direct effects of the virus, how it kills people, how it paralyzes people for two weeks, right? But perhaps more important than that, you have the indirect effects of the virus, right? So now what we are seeing is extreme rates of depression, extreme rates of loneliness, of negative psychological effects on the public everywhere. You know, the measures that are used against the virus itself create maybe a greater burden of disease, right? Think about people who, you know, lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods. And I think those effects are going to get clearer in the long distance. It can take up to five, 10 years where we realize how bad things are. Uh, I had a couple of patients who either tried to commit suicide or actually killed themselves because they're lonely, because their kids and grandkids stopped visiting them. It's heartbreaking, right? So I think so. The, the concept of burden of disease is extremely complex and extremely hard to measure. But yes, uh, all proposals take that into account um, what's funny is at least one proposal also with the burden of disease also considers uh, what countries are going to do with the virus, okay? The potential effects or benefits of the virus. And if you think about it, you know, so the burden of disease in the US is great, obviously, it's enormous, but think about the, the burden of disease, you know, the US will snap out of it, right? Its economy is pretty strong, pretty stable. Think about what it does to other countries. Think about what it can do to Brazil, for example. And think about what it does to Palestinians living right here, uh, where in Gaza, for instance, they don't have any vaccine right now. It can demolish the infrastructure, the economy that was not allowed to talk about from the get-go, 
right? On the other hand, if you give them the vaccine even, they might not be able to use it. You know, so the, the Pfizer vaccine, for instance, you have to refrigerate it in extremely low temperatures. They don't have that infrastructure. Brazil barely have that infrastructure. Uh, you know, countries in Africa don't have that infrastructure. So th the short answer is yes. All these proposals consider take uh, burden disease into account, but I think it's extremely difficult to really account for that because it's so complex and you have a lot of factors that play into that. I think that was well said. Um, so just to, to ask one more question, because I think we're running out of time here. So looking at the chat, I think we answered Eric. So I'll ask uh, Daniels here. Do you think there's a difference in the way people think about the distribution of medicines as compared to the distribution of vaccines, such as could people be more paranoid when it comes to vaccines as there's a layer of uncertainty? Yeah, well, I think, I think empirically we can say yes. Uh, I think we all get a feeling of, I, I think we all get a feeling that people, for some reason, are really afraid of the vaccine. Uh, and it was a, a piece in the economy that talks about that, that shows the rates of compliance and the rates of what people said, right? So in the US, for example, one third of people said, of respondents said they are not going to take the vaccine to be vaccinated. So empirically, yes, I think so. On the other hand, you think people, you know, they take vaccines like they were candy, right? Especially in the US. And, you know, everybody who comes into the US who is not from there, is amazed by the huge jars of ibuprofen, for instance, that you have over there, right? You don't find it anywhere else. I think it comes from concerns that are, that may be reasonable. For example, the concern that you often hear people saying, oh, but they didn't test the vaccines well enough. They didn't have time. It was developed too quickly. I think it's a legitimate concern. Right? It's a reasonable concern. I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's uh, correct. Or people complain that it wasn't used on animals enough. Again, reasonable, legitimate. I think it's misplaced. So I think some of it is because of that. But also some of it comes from or plays into a natural fear of distrust that people have towards the medical institution, towards authority, towards the government, either the you know, global governments or, or local governments telling them what to do. And again, you, you see it especially in, in certain places, like the US for instance, but also other places, even Israel. I, I, those are Two reasons. I think it's much more complex than that, but I think there is definitely a difference. Yeah. All right. I believe that's the end of all of our questions. Uh, we want to thank you, Zohar, for discussing your insightful work with us today and answering our questions. For our listeners who want to learn more about Zohar and his work, you can find a link to his biography in the description down below. Thank you again. Thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To find more of our content or explore the exciting work being done by our parent organization, the Global Health Impact Project, you can check out our website in the description below. 
The Global Health Impact Project hopes to support efforts like this podcast to provide information about and advocate for access to essential medicines. Also, follow the Global Health Impact Project social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And a special thanks to the funding provided by the World Health Organization through the grant for Global Health Justice and Equitable Vaccine Allocation. Until next time, don't forget, talking is the best medicine.